Hello, I'm Ian Skillicorn of Wyndham Books, publishing the work of Ursula Bloom for a new generation of readers as part of a long overdue revival of this very talented and special writer. Over the five episodes in this series, I'm bringing you Ursula Bloom in her own words. In previous episodes, we've learnt about Ursula's life as a young woman in the Great War and how she broke into the publishing world. This is episode four. Now, we rejoin Ursula in the mid-1920s as a new bride and about to experience her greatest writing success yet. This is Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. In the last part of November 1925, I married a naval officer, Charles Gower Robinson. I was publishing more books a year than I chose to admit, because this can be held against one. Novels do not pay. The reward is infinitely smaller than the general public ever imagines, and although the advance is solid, the royalty sheets are nearly always disappointing. But one goes on, because in the writing world, this is the only income of which an author can be sure. Years earlier, when I was very young indeed, I used to read and reread the letter page of a certain very well-known Tuppany magazine for women. I had become then a devoted admirer of the lady who, under the name of Winifred, wrote such inspired replies on vital matters of the heart. Once I had even written to her myself, under the emotional pseudonym of Broken-Hearted Butterfly, a pleasing touch, so I thought. It was the time when I wanted to marry a young gentleman, considered by my family to be considerably beneath me in position, and I wanted to know whether to be led by mother or by my heart. Winifred got out of it with a glorious performance of dexterity. She said that I must allow my own heart to choose, but must do nothing to make my poor mother anxious, which left me exactly nowhere. Anyway, in the end, the young man in question went off with somebody else, which simplified proceedings. One day, the editor of this paper sent for me. Would you care to be Winifred? she asked. I simply could not believe it. I'd never be able to write a reply. Why, the first inquiry would bowl me out, I said. I've always thought you very well suited to the job. You're very sympathetic and understanding. You try it for a month. I tried it for six years. Every Saturday, Winifred's weekly mailbag would arrive, and bit by bit I built it up until it became very large. My friend said, Don't you laugh? But Winifred wasn't there to laugh, and after all, there is nothing so excruciatingly funny in the tragedies of womankind. The little girl who has quarrelled with her boyfriend believes that she cannot bear the burden or raise her head again. The unmarried mother is nearly demented. The woman in love with a married man has no idea where to turn next. There is the mother who has lost her son, who has suddenly learnt of an incurable disease. All these came to Winifred, and I do believe they found her understanding. But I had my bad moments, and people did play tricks. There was one beastly girl, a Miss Blossom, giving a Portsmouth address, who wrote to me on a typewriter for full details, plainly put, please, of the facts of life. 
My husband was in the room when this arrived. It was the first of April, which, like a fool, I'd forgotten, and looking in my drawer for some of the rather vague little books I used to distribute in such cases, I said, Oh, Lord, I've run out of books. Now what on earth shall I do about the Blossom Girl? He burst out laughing. He had been Miss Blossom, never thinking that I would swallow it. Naturally, this opened my eyes to the depths of depravity to which one's own family will stoop. And after this, I was always on the lookout for leg pools, and got them, of course. The one difficulty was the slightly eccentric person who simply must write a letter to somebody. There was a woman once, and she wrote to me every week. She dished up all kinds of inquiries, and although I grew terser and terser and colder and colder, nothing would stop her. Drawing on her pretty vivid imagination, she peppered me good and hard. Would I write her a pleasant letter to send her grandmother? How did one get rid of nits in the hair? This is for our beauty editor, said I with firmness. She was going to a fancy dress dance. What could she go as? Forty-inch hips and five-foot-three, but nice eyes. On and on this went. One does not mind if one is being helpful, but when one is merely filling a lonely streak and already has a heavy letter bag, it is difficult. Suddenly she moved her scene of action, and to my horror, I found her well within distance of the country hotel where I happened to be living, though she naturally did not know this. The move gave her all sorts of excuses to inundate me with letters. Which train should she catch? What would she do with her luggage? And eventually, how lonely she was in the new village, and how in the world could she make fresh friends? By this time, I had been having a couple of letters a week from her for over a year. Something had got to be done to stop her. So I told her to get in touch with the rector of the parish, confide her loneliness in him, and ask if he hadn't some nice club that she could join. After all, my father, being a parson, used to get this sort of case every day of the week. So why not the rector of what you may call it? This was apparently a wild success— though I don't suppose the rector thought too much of it. But anyhow, I heard no more from my reader, who apparently had made some nice friends and had tired of Winifred. There are lots of readers like this. There was one who wrote all about nothing for weeks on end, and when I told her that she really must have some definite question to ask me, or else not write, she took offence. She said that she intended waiting outside the offices of the firm and shooting me when I went there next day. She knew me by sight, she stated, as she had seen me going in and out every morning. I never went to the office more than once a week, but now seize the opportunity not to go near it for a month, and so give her the chance to shoot somebody else. The Winifred job expanded. Apparently the firm found me very useful in this niche, and I loved the work. Another editor sent for me, and gave me a page in another paper. It was called Be My Friend, because I maintain that half the world is very lonely and wants a friend more than anything else. I refused to do the routine thing of filling my first page with a lot of bogus letters, which everybody knows are bogus, but gave a full personal letter from myself, 
explaining what a completely ordinary woman I was, and illustrated with photos of myself doing humble jobs. I am a most domesticated person, so I had a series of photos taken of myself cooking, scrubbing a floor, wielding a sewing machine, etc. A press photographer obliged, but a frightful mess was made of the cooking photo, because I tucked what I thought to be a tea towel round me to do for the apron, and came out with the word lavatory across my stomach. That had to be scrapped. Be My Friend was a big success. I opened up with my personal letter and photographs, and the first post brought in 89 letters with a bang. Everybody wrote. I made some dear friends this way, but I worked very hard for it. Once a month, I would go and visit a really needy case. This got me into worse difficulties than I had bargained for. Once I went to see a girl who was desperately worried because she was going to have a baby. She was a maid in a flat, and she rang me up, saying that her employers would be at church on the Sunday morning, which would be the best time for me to see her. I wanted to talk to her in the kitchen, but she didn't like this idea at all and insisted on seeing me in the sitting room. All the time I was horrified as to what would happen if the mistress of the house came over queer in church and returned unexpectedly. I could not possibly explain my mission without incriminating the poor girl, which I must never do, and could only suffer what might prove to be the most ignominious kick-out myself. My husband, who was waiting for me outside, not understanding the old parson's daughter interest, thought that it would serve me right if I was kicked out. After all, he argued, what other editor of such a page would take the trouble to visit the needy? All the same, I continued this habit and got into some pretty hot spots on occasion, though I must say that I liked it. Of all the hot spots that I have ever got into, the worst I ever had was interviewing the wife of a murderer which was nothing to do with being anybody's friend. This was years before I got that far. I had gone into an office with my tongue hanging out for a job, and the editor had said, Then take that one. I think with the intention of putting me off forever with my very first interview. I took it. It was more than I had bargained for. Her husband was to be hanged in the morning, and it had been a particularly nasty murder. She wasn't a very nice woman, making a good price for her interview, first of all. I felt frightful about butting in on such a moment. I needn't have done. In the end, we had a really matey discussion as to the etiquette of attending the hanging outside the prison. I begged her not to go, but of course she would, but wanted to know if one went in black when not a widow on arriving, though definitely one when driving away. I couldn't work it out for her, though I tried hard enough. Reporting and running a letter bag each offer its own quiet fun, I suppose. If fun you can call it, because much of it is tragic. I loved the people who wrote to me. Some of them I met and liked. There were very few whom I met and didn't like. I had laid the foundation stones. I could sell to a few magazines without quite so many refusals. I had a contract for novels and was improving. Now for the big newspapers. 
One day, my husband called me to the telephone. The Sunday Dispatch wants you. Surely not Charles Eade. He was the paper's eminent editor. It was Charles something or other. I went to the office straight away. Charles's private office was the corner one onto Hanging Sword Alley, and on the handsome walls were some photographs. They were of authors who had broken his sales records in their series or serials. Winston Churchill was there, Eisenhower, but only one woman, and that was Kathleen Windsor. I looked at her with envy. She had recently sent his sales soaring with the serial rights of her book, Forever Amber. All Fleet Street was agog with envy. At that moment when I sat down most uncomfortably, little did I know that the time would come when my own picture would join those on the walls, for I was to put up their sales by a hundred thousand a week. Charles had a proposition. He had had a tremendous success with Forever Amber, as all the world knew. He was now busily looking for someone to succeed it, preferably a woman who could do the same thing again for him. Doing the same thing again is never quite as easy as the first time, as I knew. Charles had been doing some research work. He was a positive glutton for hard work. And he thought that there was the chance for a good, strong serial about a woman in the history of England who was known as Emma Hamilton. He was convinced that there were enormous serialization possibilities in a work which he would call Our Dearest Emma. This was the title that had been given to the very beautiful heroine when she was living with Charles Greville on Paddington Green, and when his uncle, Sir William Hamilton, came to stay with them. It sounds good to me. I said, and I thought you were the person to write it for me. Complete horror engulfed me. I had never tried my hand at any historical work, though I did admit that history had always enormously interested me, and my father, a great historian, had taught me much about it. Oh, no, I said, I, I couldn't possibly do that. I should be sure to let you down. I know nothing about it. A good editor knows that it is his responsibility to talk round the shyly retiring author. I am sure that you could do it. I have the greatest faith in you. He told me that the firm would do all the research work for me. I need have no qualms, for they would not tax me on this. I could ring up at any time for help and get it immediately. He wanted the work soon, and the right to sit on it until he selected what he believed to be the actual right moment for publication. This must be left to his discretion, but they would pay a sum down on acceptance so that I should not be stuck for money. I became extremely nervous and fidgety. He saw it. Supposing I made a diabolical hash of this. He gaily talked me out of that one, and Charles could talk. He got me interested. Here was a first-class top editor who would not be thwarted. I must leave what one calls open doors in the story, so that if it was the howling success he believed it would be, we could spread out through these doors and go on running forever. In the end, I agreed. Now, about the fee, said he. As though I had not had sufficient already. I was so frightened that I should be the complete flop, 
that I had not the sense left to think of a fee. Playing for time, I said that I could not do this under my own name. My book publisher would not like that. No, no, of course not. We'll get a name for you. I'm very good at getting names. Lucky, too. I'll work that. Now, what about the fee? I felt that I was being popped into a pram and was being discreetly wheeled away. I had no idea about a fee. Twenty-four instalments for a start, and two thousand words a go, with four thousand words in the first and three in the second. Dare I ask him eight hundred pounds? Or what was the right thing to do? The writer Wyatt Tilby had always told me that when an editor started to bat a ball at you, the thing to do was not to take it, but to bat it back at him, and hard. He'd have to make the offer if I stayed dumb long enough. I said that I did not know. I think he eventually realized that he would never get a figure out of me, for he came down to facts with a bounce. All right, then. What about three thousand guineas? This, at the end of an exhausting interview, was too much. My ears buzzed. If I fainted, then Charles would realize that I had never heard of such money before. My voice teetered. I could hardly speak because I was so swept off my feet, and he misunderstood my sheer surprise for disappointment. Very well, then. Four thousand. Do remember that it must be anonymous. Any name you like, save my own, I insisted. He was a superstitious man who believed that luck came through names, and these meant something to him. He said he would find a very good name for me, and I trusted him. If I would go home and get on with the first instalment and let him have it, when I returned he would have a name ready for me. I got down to work at once. I am at my best when the spirit moves me. I have to go fast or I can do nothing, and people always try to stop me working this way, which is the only way possible to me. From the second I started, Emma became a living girl to me, and I adored her. I never saw her as the mistress of many, the harlot, the little cheat, but as the kind, generous, sweet girl which I believe she was. I sent in my first instalment in a cold sweat of horror, panicking lest it should be impossible. Charles rang me up. Years after, he told me that he was the one who nearly fainted, for it was so infinitely ahead of anything he had thought possible from me. I never expected such a finished instalment. It's fine. I'll alter anything, and only too willingly. Nothing must be altered. Fire ahead, it's grand. A boy will be round this afternoon, and come and see me about the name under which you will be writing this. Yes, of course. Tomorrow? This time when I got to the office, I was VIP, I knew. Charles had already given me self-pride, which I had never had before. He believed that he had a winner here. He almost made me see it that way myself. Up to his office I went. He had, he said, got the most wonderful name for me to use. It was Lausania Prole. It struck me that I was destined to faint in his best chair in the office, and this time I nearly did. When I could speak, I asked, Where did you get that one from?
He went into a long explanation. Lozania was Spanish for a blossom, and my surname being Bloom, it was applicable. I don't know why he had had to go to Spain for this, but he had done. The work itself was a coordination between our two cells, and his name being C. Ede, he got that down to being Seed, through some strange whim of his own, and in Spanish a Seed was Prole. I had told him that I would take any name he liked, and he was far too pleased with himself over this one for me to suggest that, personally, I thought it quite awful. But I did remind him that, if there were any nasty kickbacks from readers, he must get out of them himself and not bat them back to me. When publication date arrived, I was glad that I had done this, for as the first instalment appeared, letters immediately arrived. There was one from someone in Wiltshire who said that he was one of the proles and was convinced that Lozania must be some distant connection of his. He would very much like to meet her. Charles played fair when I handed the letter over to him with a, Well, there you are, aren't you? And he dealt with it. Our Dearest Emma is the gripping novel about the scandalous life and loves of Emma, Lady Hamilton. It's written by Ursula Bloom under the pen name Lozania Prole. Thanks to her striking beauty, young Amy Lyon was transformed into Emma Hart, destined for a glittering future. From humble beginnings, she became Emma, Lady Hamilton, one of the most famous and celebrated women of her time. This gripping fictional biography paints a vivid portrait of Emma's incredible rags-to-riches life. Emma mixes in circles with influential men of art, medicine and politics. She rises to fame and fortune as the wife of Sir William Hamilton and confidant of Queen Maria Carolina of Naples. And, of course, as the mistress of Vice Admiral Horatio Lord Nelson. But when success and popularity depend on youth, beauty and the patronage of important men, will Emma's remarkable story inevitably end in tragedy? Our Dearest Emma by Lozania Prole is published by Wyndham Books and is available as an e-book exclusively from Amazon. Search for Our Dearest Emma by Lozania Prole and read the story that made Ursula Bloom a huge newspaper serial success. I work very hard on Emma, but I was fascinated by the girl. Also, the tremendous encouragement which I was receiving from the office helped me so much. I did the first ten instalments in a fortnight. During that time, I lived entirely in the book and began to think in it. Nobody save my husband knew of it, but he is always my best critic and passed instalment after instalment, pointing out any errors to me. When finally the last of the unending instalments arrived at Northcliffe House, Charles thanked me, and then there came the complete silence. I was disappointed, for I had hoped that Emma would begin where Forever Amber left off. This was not to be. Nothing happened at all, and I began to think that perhaps after all the manuscript was so much below par that Charles Ede could not publish it. That was a horrible thought. This chasm seemed to last forever. Then one day he rang me up quite casually. We shall be starting, Emma, the week after next. On the Sunday, London was peppered with posters, and I actually got sick of seeing them. In print, Emma read far better than I had anticipated, which is often the case, for it is extraordinarily difficult to connect the typescript with the finished work. 
On the Tuesday when I was in Fleet Street, everyone was talking about it. They said it was astoundingly well done. And where on earth had Charles Ede found the writer? Did I know? Naturally, I had no idea and so much wanted to know myself. Someone said, It's so obviously a fake name that it must be somebody who's wanting to hide up. But it must be a trained writer and a very well-trained one. A man, wouldn't you think? I didn't dare think. I haven't really read it, I admitted. Well, you should. If I wait for years, I'll find out who it was. You watch me. Good luck to you, I thought. For whatever happened, she had not an idea at the moment. I'd rather hope that Charles would be so pleased that he would ask me out to lunch somewhere nice to celebrate. He should have done, but that was not quite his cup of tea. Three weeks later, he rang me up to say that the sales were shooting up in the most encouraging manner. It was another forever amber, he was sure. Would I now get down to it right away and open some of those gaps we had left, where we could, if required, lengthen the serial? Just before he rang off, he said, And by the by, have you a nice photograph of yourself? If you have, send it along, for I want it for my office wall. This meant a hundred thousand a week, and this was an achievement. I went out and got myself a chalk ice. I thought I would have my own little celebration in my own way. The local newsagent could not get enough copies of the dispatch. The char told me that her son got up early on a Sunday to go out and get another spot of Emma, for if he didn't, it was sold out. I should have thought that she would have seen installments lying about my writing room and the boy from the dispatch languishing in my hall waiting for the next one. Apparently not. An agent rang me. I say, Miss Bloom, are you Lasania Prole? he asked me. What do you mean? Whatever gave you that idea? She wrote the serial which is now running in the Sunday dispatch and a winner. I have something of great interest, a tremendous offer for the author if I can find him or her, and I thought perhaps you might know. I wish I did. I could do with a tremendous offer. Miss pulled him together. He was a very old friend, and after a time he stopped arguing and came to the conclusion that he had put his money on the wrong horse. Finally, he cleared himself with this. Well, I suppose when I come to think about it, you could not possibly have done it. You don't touch historicals anyway. Everybody's mad to know who the author is. And I must say, he's doing something for Northcliffe House in a big way. It must be very nice for him, I remarked. The Museum Press, then part of Robert Hale's publishing business, accepted Emma and were enchanted to have her. Robert Hale was a dear old friend whom I had known in my early days at Hutchinson's. He was ever gallant and could be trusted to do the right thing, for he asked me out to lunch to celebrate the new contract. The lunch with Robert was fun, talking of the old times, and he was enchanted to have Emma. He was a very wise man and a great judge of a book. He had to hold her in abeyance until the last instalment appeared in the dispatch, then come out with her at speed. I never have any false illusions about being famous. I do not bother my publisher to know if a book is selling well or badly, 
I leave it alone and to him. I should imagine that any publisher gets sick to death of writers who are forever ringing up for details of their sales. The bad or good news comes in soon enough on the royalty sheets, so why worry him now? With regard to Emma, I knew she was moving in the literary world, but left it to Robert Hale to get on with it. He had offered to advance me some money in respect of future royalties if I wanted it, but I did not. I am not one of those people who draw on money ahead. It's a mug's game. One day, the novelist Denise Robbins came to see me. She was always keenly interested in how a book was doing. Not for the world would I have mentioned Emma to her, for I knew that she might not be happy about it. One should keep quieter about one's successes than one's failures, I think, for everyone sympathizes with a flop, but successes can inflame the imagination and one can lose a friend on them. Denise wanted to know the sales of Emma, and was surprised that I did not know. She made me ring Robert, for she said that I ought to know. Robert replied that if I waited half a moment he would inquire, and let me know what they amounted to up to last week. I was most uncomfortable, and meanwhile we conjectured what they would be. Possibly six thousand, said I. Back came Robert's voice. Are you there, Ursula? Up to last Friday, we were just over a quarter of a million. I said, it can't be true. Publishers don't lie. We're very happy about it, and you ought to feel the same way. Somehow, I did not want to confess to this sale. It seemed almost too much. But I had to confess, chokily, he says it's over the quarter million. She was very kind about it, but nobody could be anything else but envious, for it was a very big sale. I might even change the sitting-room curtains on the strength of it. This had been one of the few bits of first-class luck that had come into my life. I'd fought for it, heaven knows, and it was a comforting reward. I've been very lucky, was what I said. Charles sent for me one morning, and when I got there told me that he wanted a serial about Ava Brown, Hitler's mistress. I was fascinated with the idea. We discussed it in his office, and he gave me the results of all the research work they had undertaken. It was mainly dates, and I wanted more. It so happened that I knew a kind doctor friend born in the south of Germany. He had never personally met the famous Ava, but he told me that if I would give him a little time, he would find somebody who had. I wanted to get a picture of the girl, and went along to the German embassy to see this man. The embassy, or part of it, was at number six Prince's Gate, the house where my first husband had been born and where my in-laws lived for years. They had sold it in between the two wars. As we went up the stairs, which I knew so well, the commissioner said, I'm afraid the office is on the top floor. It's a steady climb. I can't think how people ever lived in the ass. They did, I told him, remembering some of the grand dinner parties I had attended there as a young and shy bride. The office into which I was ushered with great grandeur had then been the cook's bedroom. The amiable gentleman who had known the Browns was kind but reserved. He knew her parents best. The girl had been a rather silly matron, he told me. 
he murmured something about the wretched anxiety of her people. She had gone over to the Nazi party and they could do nothing. They never thought that she would die for it, but she did. He refused to speak of her as Frau Hitler, which was, of course, the name under which she died. For some reason, he was reluctant to admit his real feelings about the girl, though he told me many things, and I returned home to start my serial. Hitler's Ava was a success, and yet did not do well in the foreign serial market, for people abroad were more anti-war, and they had taken a violent dislike to this girl whose very name was a nasty word. At the same time, she paid me admirably. I thanked my lucky stars that I had ever met Charles Ede. This episode was edited and produced by me, Ian Scullycorn, for Wyndham Audio. Ursula's words are read by Lisa Armitage. To hear the whole series, subscribe to Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a positive review as it will really help us to spread the word. You can find out more about the life of Ursula Bloom and where to buy her books from the official website, ursulabloom.com. And now, as we approach the end of this series, you can get your free exclusive ebook of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words by joining our Ursula Bloom Readers Club. The ebook contains the text of all five episodes of this podcast series. It's yours to keep when you sign up to the free email newsletter of the Ursula Bloom Readers Club. We'll send you news on special discounts and new releases, and we'll never share your details with anyone else. Get your free ebook today at ursulabloom.com slash readers. Join me next time for the fifth and final episode of Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words. Ursula Bloom, A Life in Words.